Hello everybody, welcome to another edition of the Value Line Observer with Val Hughes of the Value Guys. I'm a 30-year Wall Street veteran who has taken on a secret identity and gone undercover in order to freely provide my candid views on a handful of stocks out of each week's Value Line Investment Survey. It's Friday after work, after hours, if you will. I'm relaxed. I have an adult beverage. I'm reading Value Line, just like I have for 25 years, and now you're in on it. Uh, the format of the show uh, is as follows. Uh, first, I order a drink, and uh, I've already accomplished that. And then I page through Value Line, which I'm doing here. Uh, you should hope I've already done that. Uh, I have done a little bit of it uh, today already. Uh, and then, uh, you know, uh, I probably uh, have a rant that I probably just thought up. So. It may not make any sense, but just go along with me. And then I give it a shot and offer up three favorite ideas out of this week's Value Line Investment Survey. That's probably the best part of the show. Um, the rant is just, you know, after uh, an adult beverage, I sometimes rant. Um, this week, I'm going to look at the uh, January, let's see, 29th. 2010 edition of the Value Line Investment Survey. I'm running just a little uh, late this week. Uh, but before I get to that, a couple of caveats. One, this show is strictly for entertainment purposes only. I am the same professional that does this for paying clients during the week, but here it's the weekend. I'm kicked back, uh, probably drinking and reading Value Line. Um, and so uh, please uh, beware of, of all that. Two, I may have serious conflicts of interest, including having a personal position in the stock that's different than that that I take on the show, or having some economic arrangement with the companies that I mention on the show. Honestly, uh, you know, my lawyers make me say this, but then I have to immediately say I may make everything up on the show. So this is the sad state of legal affairs uh, that I have to say all that. And three... Uh, and this is uh, from the heart. I may be completely uninformed. In fact, you should probably count on that. That's probably for the best. See all the disclosures at www.thevalueguys.com uh, where you can see links to bios, pictures, things like that. Also, uh, this show is going on its fifth year now. And you can see a long list of best ideas from the show going way back on a link from the site that I put in a, sort of a Yahoo Finance format, but it works. And finally, uh, at the beginning of this year, I started a little blog just to summarize the show. You could save a lot of time by uh, reading that instead of listening to this. But on the other hand, maybe I haven't done it yet. I haven't, you know, put it up yet. So, um, But that is also available from the site or uh, the address directly is valuelineobserver.thevalueguys.com. You can get to that blog. Okay, uh, this week, first up, uh, just a little rant, um, and uh, nothing in the news really caught my eye. You know, there's a lot of uh, a conversation about, you know, what spending should be. Is it too high? Is it too low? What should it be on? Uh, what should the tax rate be? Who should we tax? When should we tax them? And it strikes me, again, I've been, this has been on my mind for a while. I'm just going to rant, kind of rant about it right now, which is, um, we we really need to think about treating the government like we treat our kids. So if any of you have kids out there, um, you know, you don't talk about what you're going to buy at the same time you talk about what the allowance is. You know, that would be like taking your kids to a toy store, 
uh, letting them roam around and see what looks good. And then when you, you know, kind of suggest uh, the Twizzlers or the Raisinets or what have you, they, they say, why not both, you know? So, and then, you know, is it, do you love me? Why can't I have both, et cetera? It's best to set the limit on the way in. Then you don't have any of that sort of stuff. So, or for example, weekly allowance. First, you set the allowance. What is the allowance? And it's probably related to your income. It's a percentage of your income. At the candy store, it's a percentage of the money you have in your pocket. You don't just let the spending go wild. You compare it to what you have. So um, I think what we need to think about is having trying to split this into two conversations. Uh, one is how much should the allowance be that the government, who's supposed to work for us, gets to spend? What should that amount be? So let's think about that. Once we come up with that, then you can have the whole discussion on how should you split it up. Otherwise, if you talk about what you should spend first, I mean, everything looks good. You don't want to deny anything. You don't want to deny uh, medical. That's bad. You don't want to deny um, education. You don't want to deny interest on the debt. You don't want to deny uh, foreign aid. So... You say yes to everything. Next thing you know, uh, the percentage of GDP that's government keeps going up because everything sounds good. So I really think that to have any hope of getting this under control, this wild spending, the reason I'm talking about it is that it crushes out private spending. That's where all the companies are that I'm talking about on the show. That's where... Uh, you can invest. You can't invest in government, really, um, in in the way that, you know, you might think about it, like making money from that investment. You know, they talk about investing in government. But um, my point is that it's worth talking about on the show and trying to think about getting this under control. Otherwise, none of these companies are going to be worth anything when you get hundreds of years down the road because government will have squeezed out all the private companies. And then we just have to guess which one will survive. And I'd probably have to go with uh, the, you know, the electric companies um, and maybe Microsoft, who I still think has a button they could press to turn off all the computers in the government. That would make a sensible, you know, uh, monopoly decision on their part. But I'm getting a little off a point. The point is, let's think about what the allowance should be for the government in terms of what the tax rate should be. And maybe people should vote on this young, so it's not affected by who has money and who doesn't. It's just what's fair for everyone. And you need to think about making this the same for everyone because we are the land of opportunity. Why shouldn't we all have the same opportunity to have the same tax rate? And the other point I'd make is that if you have a regressive tax system like we do now where the more you earn, the higher your tax rate is, you might note, uh, use psychology majors, that as you increase the taxes, as the wages or the earnings go up, it increases the incentives to work less or produce less because you retain less of each additional dollar of work. In companies that have sales forces that need to uh, sell things in order to survive then or earn 
Did I just start to sound like William Shatner? Um, so in order to survive as a company, you need to have sales. And the way sales departments are incentivized, oftentimes, so if you're a salesman and this is not true, certainly write me at val at thevalueguys.com. But in sales organizations, and I've worked in a few, as your production goes up, your uh, retention goes up. Your rate of commission rises as you increase your production. So your incentives to work harder and go, uh, go farther go up as you produce more. Your rewards actually go up. And so the government is, you know, I think should be at least open to moving away from, uh, you know, a, a system that incentivizes less work uh, to one that's at least neutral to work, and that might help productivity for everyone. But my point is, let's vote on the tax rate. So my my slogan is, I'm trying to keep this to as few words as possible so it could fit on a button. And so I'm thinking, vote the tax rate. You could have vote for the tax rate, but you know, again, do you really need that additional word? I don't know. So that's my rant. Vote the tax rate and create incentives for everyone to produce more over their lives and, uh, and you know, set the allowance number. And once we do that, We'll come back and, you know, maybe there's ways to figure out how to split it all up. But first, we need to vote on the tax rate. That's my opinion. Anyway, that's my rant. Okay, now I've got three uh, terrific, or medium, I guess, of value ideas this week, all of which I know I've spoken about before at one time or another. And uh, all of our uh, past shows are indexed. Um, you can, of course, look in iTunes, and I have the tickers in there. Or if you pull our uh, RSS code into Internet Explorer, and that button is on the homepage at thevalueguys.com, then that, uh, if you pull that up in Internet Explorer, there's a, a, a place on the right side of the page. You can enter a ticker, and any show that had that stock discussed will will pop up. And uh, at this point, there's a lot of these in there, and I know these three are in there at some point. First up, from page 1931, Sara Lee, ticker SLE. Um, what I'm first attracted to, and I did actually, I kid earlier in the show, I did actually look at every stock this week in the value line, and I, I've got a widescreen uh, PC now, so I could set up two screens. I had the value line um, menu and then the pdfs were popping up click 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 it was very easy to do and uh and so um i took a good look through the whole issue this week the reason i liked sarah lee was a couple things one the, the valuation is what strikes me first um and across the top of the value line you know there's a relative pe ratio 0.74 that means you know, 74% of the market P.E., so you're at a 26% discount. And so that catches my eye. I see a 3.7% yield. It's better than you're getting at the bank. That catches my eye. P.E. ratio of, uh, you know, 13. Again, that's low, as we know, catches my eye. So I just keep looking. I look at the relative performance. This thing has uh, done terribly for eight years, so there's no expectations in it. It has bounced off the low 
Uh, it is a company that has a reasonable amount of debt, not as a percent of total capital, but, you know, $2.7 billion. And there was a point last March or so where, you know, the market felt like no one would ever get a loan again. And so anyone that had that much debt out, you know, got slammed. And these guys got down to seven. Uh, 770 per share, or 680 uh, earlier in uh, 09, and right now it's at 1230, so it's nearly a double. Um, but the old high on this is, uh, you know, in the in the upper 20s, and uh, that's uh, quite a few years ago. It was a different company then. They got to be quite a conglomerate. And the thing that's interesting is the stock is cheap, and yet all the expectations from five, eight, ten years ago of the growth and the you know, the synergy that was going to come from this big diversified company is out of the stock now. So it's it's been somewhat left for dead. They sold, um, let's see, well, they had, uh, you know, an apparel business, and they sold a lot of that, and they're still divesting some things that, uh, you know, I think they owned Hanes at one time and some other things or Fruit of the Loom or, you know, I don't even remember. They had a whole bunch of stuff in here. And they're continuing to sell brands that aren't part of the core. They're focusing around their core, <coughs> excuse me, their core, uh, you know, food and beverage businesses. And I think you know that makes sense. That's that means they're they're you know, apt to be one of the largest companies in the business. They're going to have economies of scale in advertising and distribution and manufacturing. And, uh, you know, that should help shareholders over time. And I like companies that are smart enough to know when something isn't working. And so rather than try to keep it working, you know, they get rid of it. And they've been using the money to pay, uh, you know, buy back stock. So I like that. They had, uh, you know, 880, they had 900 million shares 10 years ago. Now they have 680 million shares. So um, they continue to reward shareholders at low valuations by buying back stock. They've put up decent returns on capital going way back. Again, that's another metric I like to see. And even through this period of divestitures, uh, they've maintained a uh, low teens return on capital. And, and that's in a, you know, obviously what we're now calling the Great Recession. So that's pretty good. They lever it up uh, a bit, 50% debt to cap. That's bigger than I like. Uh, but And they get to a low 20s percent return on equity, which is very respectable. Um, the debt, you know, is pretty well covered. And one of the things, again, the theme on this one might be stable, low-tech growth, um, you know, leads to the ability for the larger companies to, to gain economies of scale in um, basically consumer awareness, which leads to share, which leads to size, which leads to distribution economies and manufacturing economies, even and, and it's aided by the fact that you don't have a lot of um, you know new innovation where you can get blindsided by some guy in a garage that could invent a new you know cake or something. It's basically you know you've got your distribution, your quick to store, your relationships, your um, your warehouses in place, your bakeries, what have you, and you know that's going to be a big barrier to entry. Um, and so um, you should be able to earn excess returns on capital for a long time. And you know they're certainly uh, doing that. If I look at uh, valuation on this one, so I've looked at the metrics that you know, kind of let me know if I'm interested in the company itself. Do they have barriers to entry? They do. Do they have barriers to exit? Not really. They've just demonstrated that by selling a bunch of stuff and buying down 
you know, stock. Uh, they earn an operating margin in the low to mid-teens, which, you know, uh, operating margin is, uh, you know, one minus the operating margin, one over that is sort of the markup. And so, you know, it, it's not very large when you have 11% operating margin, one over uh, 0.89, whatever that is. It's, you know, 1.12 or something. 12, 13% markup on total costs isn't great. But one way to look at that is a margin that low, given the economies of scale that they enjoy, it's going to be a huge barrier in and of itself. No one's going to be able to compete with them on price because um, they won't have the cost structure and they won't be able to earn any money at the at the price structure that Sara Lee or companies their size are able to put up. They have pretty decent logistics. So when I look at um, you know total sales over total capital, um, it's enough to get the operating margin from 15%. So I've got you know, basically operating income over sales is my operating margin, and then I've got um, total, uh, well, sales over total capital is my asset uh, turnover, if you will, and that leaves me with, in effect, operating return on capital, and it shows you your components of that. So, you know, they've got pretty decent margin and pretty decent leverage. It leads to, uh, um, you know, a, a low 20s percent return on equity, as I was saying earlier. So I like all that. It looks sustainable to me. And it's not going to be a huge grower, um, but I don't need that. I'd rather have the stability. And when I look at the valuation here, I'm going to look at what would it cost me to own the entire company. And that's the number we call enterprise value in the business. And it's simply um, the value of all the shares times the price of the shares. Value line puts the market cap on the page, $8.6 billion. I'm going to add the debt to that because I want to buy that back too so I don't have to pay interest expense. Or at least I can think about that as a separate transaction for the funding of the capital structure. So uh, the company has $2.7 billion in debt. So that's uh, what? I don't have a calculator here. 10, 6, uh, 11, 3. And then I'm going to subtract out the debt, the cash. It's one, call it 1, 3. So that gets me back to 10. So 10 billion, and I'd own the whole company, all the cash flows. And according to Value Line, um, the 2010 estimate is about a 15.5% operating margin on 11 billion in sales. And I'm just going to round that and say that's about. 160 um, or a billion six, I should say, and on 10 billion in enterprise value, a billion six in EBITDA, and that's earnings before interest, depreciation, depreciate. I'm sorry, interest before earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Uh, that number divided by the enterprise value, I can think of as a yield. So 1.6 billion in EBITDA divided by 10 billion in enterprise value. That's going to be a 16 percent cash return on the cash I paid for the entire business. And then uh, I'll get the growth on top of that. So 16% cash yield. A value line says 12% earnings growth. I don't think I really need that um, to own this. You know, I'm good at 20%. Or when you think of bank rates right now, you know, maybe you don't even need uh, that much. But it certainly gives you a cushion for mistakes and things like that. So Sara Lee, um, you know, there's some detail here. Um, that basically says they haven't been doing that well. Brands lose share in these sorts of recessions. Private label picks up. They've been jettisoning their private label. So, uh, but that seems to largely be in the stock, um, and I think this is a good long-term 
um, hold here, uh, Sara Lee SLE. Okay, next up, Philip Morris, which I have done before, ticker PMI, no, PM, I'm sorry, page 1995. Philip Morris is uh, the spin-out from the old Philip Morris that is... Uh, represents the international cigarette business of the old Philip Morris. The U.S. business is in the firm Altria, and um, what that does for this company is it uh, it eliminates the requirement to follow U.S. rules. So uh, they get to advertise, for example, and um, they get to, you know, basically uh, have different regimens in each country for taxes, and those remain, my understanding is, you know, pretty high, but uh, the real power of uh, the international break was to um, allow promotion of the uh, of the brands separate from the U.S. brands. So they own, you know, Marlboro, Philip Morris, Chesterfield, Parliament, and... Uh, and they uh, none of it in the U.S. Europe is 48% of, bi- of the business. Middle East, Africa is 23%. Asia, 20%. Latin America, 10%. The company's headquartered in New York City, but uh, and, and they're incorporated in Virginia, but the, uh, let's see, the operations are in Switzerland. So, um, you know, they uh, they have managed to uh, separate this business into two pieces. The The near term has been weak. Um, even with an addictive drug, sales have been a little weak, and so the stock has been sluggish. This thing came out in uh, early 08. But my theme in this is really you have an addictive drug that um, you know no longer has the uh, rules of the U.S. that were inhibiting the marketing of the, of the product. Um, there is a correlation between wealth and cigarette smoking, and that was true in the U.S. and other Western uh, countries until, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We all got very rich per capita, decided to focus on health, and so, you know, consumption of cigarettes in the West is tailed way off, of course. Per capita use is down a lot. But in Asia, particularly Latin America, growth economies, as wealth is growing, people uh, have the discretionary income to buy these products. They get addicted to them, and uh, that generates enormous cash flows. I think in many cases the companies are in partnership with the government because it generates you know, such lucrative tax revenue that nobody's bothered about, again, because it's an addictive drug. Um, and so... Um, you know, they sometimes have uh, the government at your back. Even in the United States, all those uh, settlements um, that paid billions to, um, you know, so-called victims, the state was always uh, in in partnership with that because uh, it allowed them to set prices and generate tax revenues while also paying off um you know these lawsuits and and so i think in in europe and asia certainly it's going to work the same way india and china uh particularly china you know the per capita smoking is very high there and i think these countries that are in the ascension economically are going to be big smokers and it's going to be a while before they get to you know, worrying about uh the health of um of smokers when you still have you know, the number of industrial accidents you have or people drinking water or getting hit by trains, things like that. There's a lot of things to worry about before you get uh, worried about smoking. Um, the valuation on this stock is attractive in the sense that you have 
um, in effect, I think, kind of a growing, it, it, it's, it's, it's an addictive drug, and it's growing. Uh, it trades at a 16% discount to the market PE. It's a 4.6% yield, which, again, is quite a bit more than you get at the banks. These guys put up enormous margins. They're in the upper, well, not enormous, but upper teens, which says something proprietary is going on. And then they uh, lever that a little bit in operations, so they're putting up a mid-20s, a return on total capital, which is phenomenal, and then they lever that a little bit. They're putting up returns on equity in the, you know, it's a young company, but 70% range, and uh, that's pretty amazing. Now, the debt is higher here than I'd like. It's 67% debt to capital, but because of the margin, the coverage on this thing is still pretty good. Let me figure this out. Value Line says they got $14.2 billion in debt, and... Uh, Let's just say they pay, uh, I have no idea what they pay on that. Maybe they pay, let me make the math easy and say it's 5%. That would give me a $700 million payment. And over in the operating income area, I've got you know, $60 billion and nearly a 20% operating margin. So let me make the math easy on that if you don't mind. That gives me $12 billion in revenue, I'm sorry, in operating income. And seven hundred million in interest expense, so that's covered. You know what have you? Fifteen, sixteen times. Um, even in terrible demand years, you don't see a fall off like that. According to Value Line, uh, business has been weak recently. As I said, cash flow remains strong. Uh, the company is poised to expand. You know, it's really. Um, nothing unusual is going on. It's just what you would expect. For reasons that I can't explain exactly, Value Line hasn't chosen to rank this, and they just put NMF on all their estimated growth rates. I think you have to look at some sort of a population growth. You've got a per capita growth rate in there, which could grow for a while as the as you know those nations grow, but ultimately you know they'll get rich enough to worry about uh, the health of their citizens as well. That could be 20 years from now, so I'm not too worried about that in the near term. And uh, and then you've got some type of price increase, which at least if the U.S. is any guide, and because you do have the government as a partner in their share of tax revenue, you're apt to get you know better price increases here than inflation. And so typically, uh, this should turn out to be a pretty good investment. Philip Morris, page 1995, that's ticker PM. And then finally this week, and I see I am using up, I have been using a lot of time, so I apologize. <clears throat> and my voice is going too, so I may have to drink a little bit here. And I think for those old-time listeners, I'm going to do a beverage break with myself. So, yeah, that's what it's like out here now. Although I do have an exciting announcement. If you've managed to listen to the show this long, then this is something you'll want to hear. I have been looking for some additional value guys. You know, they're not all just in one part of the country. So, you know, I have moved. There are value guys in my new location. And I think this week I have made some arrangements. Not tonight, obviously. The show's nearly over. But I think maybe next week... I'm going to have a surprise value guy on the show, a new value guy. So we'll see. Uh, it's just He's just a guest, nothing permanent. He's just going to rotate in and uh, pay us a visit uh, here on the Value Guys 
next week. Okay, last up this week, uh, a stock I have talked about before. It's uh, on page 2010, which is, uh, you know, serendipity. I don't know if that means we need to buy it or what. Uh, the chart, uh, you know, if this, uh, if you did buy it now, um, we'd have to hope this is the low. It hasn't done well for a number of years, and uh, I think those days are be behind us. Uh, the company is Avid Technology, ticker AVID. And what I'm attracted to here is, first of all, how terrible it looks on the surface. I don't know why I get attracted to that, but it strikes me that when you have something that looks terrible on the surface, a lot of people just walk by. You know, they don't walk by. No curb appeal. They're not going to take a look, and maybe there's something in there. So, again, one of the, I think, uh, caveat not caveats, one of the tenants of value investing, at least in our shop, is you have to try to look where other people aren't. You need an edge in information, and one way to get it is to, you know, go places where not a lot, a lot of other people are looking. And if it's messy and dirty, you know, sometimes people don't like to look in there. And this one on the surface certainly looks that way. But what I am attracted to is a valuation. And in this case, since they're earning no money on the surface, it's not your traditional valuation. But, um, you know, Value Line does put the price on the top, 1380 And then they have, immediately under that, they show high-low prices going back about 10 years. So you can sort of scan through there, and you can see that... Uh, the stock is uh, 1380. It was as high as 68 in 2005, and uh, revenues are down, but they're about uh, you know where they were in 2004, the year before the high. Um, and so the question would be, can this company ever get back to those levels? Um, you know, it does appear in most years. Going again, going back ten years, and this is just very rough at this stage, right? I'm just spiraling into whether I want to spend any time on this, but I look back and I see that in most years the stock gets to, you know, two times revenue per share. Well, right now Value Line's estimating seventeen dollars a share in revenue for next year, stock at fourteen, at a discount to revenues per share. And again, when I look back, the number of years when this stock has gotten to a discount from uh, revenues per share, I would have to say is a couple, and they're all during the last recession. So it appears that, again, it's just a hypothesis at this point, because I haven't done any work on this, but it appears that when you get into a recession, this discretionary sales of their product falls off a lot, people worry that they'll never sell another product, and the stock gets crushed. And then people buy the product, and uh, because it's got a very high incremental profit, uh, everyone gets excited after a couple quarters of uh, re renewed sales. Um, what these guys do, and I'm sorry to take so long with that, but I'm just trying to spiral into what gets me attracted to this, because at this point I could care less what they do. I'm just looking at, can this stock go up a lot? And I see a stock that at some point in the past was four times the level it is today, so I start looking into this. And uh, what they do 
is they develop, and I'm reading Value Line, they develop software and systems for digital media production, management, and distribution. They make digital nonlinear video and film editing systems, as well as a range of image manipulation products designed to create graphics and special effects for use in films, advertising, and news programs. And then they also develop digital audio systems, which is where I first ran into them in um, evaluating different software to, you know, basically produce this show. I ran into their product called Pro Tools, which they bought uh, about uh, 14, 15 years ago. At this point, it gets me interested. So what am I? What do I got here? I actually, and I don't usually do this because one of my caveats is I'm only using Value Line, and that's normally true. But at this point, I'm, I'm kind of interested because my question would be, what is it about their technology? Is it enduring? Is it a franchise? Or is it about to be obsolesced by something that, you know, who knows, that Apple comes out with or, or you know, uh, Adobe or somebody? You know, I don't know what their core is because in audio, I know you have a lot of competitors. So I actually went and, you know, wikied this up a little bit to see what was behind it. And it turns out that there's a guy here named Bill Warner who, um, you know, is a serial entrepreneur, a lot of companies that he's started and a lot of success. But he came up with a product back in the mid-'80s that turned, uh, you know, analog video into digital video and allowed it a huge increase in productivity for editing. And they built a product they call Media Composer. And evidently, at this point in time, we're talking right now, you know, every major movie is produced on this product uh, called Media Composer of Avid Technologies. And so they're trying to extend that franchise into other areas, into, you know, audio and things like that with some success, some limited success. But the core franchise here appears to be a lockup on the digital uh, editing of uh, all the movies in the world. And I will say this, again, getting back to big picture data, uh, the market share of uh, entertainment relative to total wealth in the world has been doing nothing but go up uh, forever. Um, and so will that continue? Um, you know, for, uh, food at one point was 100%, now it's 4 and so, um, you know, where can entertainment go? Um, I don't know, but it's uh, going up right now. And these guys, um, you know, seem to be in a position to benefit from the fact that there's a lot more places that you can watch video, um, and uh, it's increasing all the time. And, you know, I think that once people are uh, mobile with video, which obviously is here and improving, then, you know, there's um, there's apt to be uh, the potential for more revenue, and that means the potential for price increases for a key component of the drivers of that revenue. So my theme on this is really, as I dig in and look at it, is that you've got a best-of-class technology utility in a growing sector where the learning curve is enormous. Can you imagine what it must take to learn this thing? And then how interested you might be in changing, you know, once you have it learned. And so um, 
again, a little research you could do on this probably is go and look on Monster Jobs or something and look in film and, and see how many ads are requiring uh, knowledge of media composer. But it sounds like you got to know this or you're not making your movie. And so to me, what that suggests is they're going to have enormous pricing opportunities because you simply cannot turn this off or you do not have a movie this point or you don't have a body of people that understand the other uh, you know programs that might be available so in effect they have a lock by having a lock on the talent pool that understands how to work this software and in any case um, that gets me pretty excited now why is the stock so beat up well there's some explanation here um, they had some um, an investigation related to the timing of revenue recognition and when that comes up, people get a little scared about it. But it's oftentimes just a question of matching your expenses and your revenue so that some you know, selling-related expense that got into Q1 should have really been in Q4. And so that means the earnings calculation wasn't quite right. And so you've got to go back and restate it. It's going to be, my bet is, immaterial. But nevertheless, while that's going on, there's all kinds of people that have to back away and can't buy it because it's got a little scare on it. You know, who knows uh, if everything's fraudulent? You know, but when someone's got a 90% market share in a, you know, in a tool area, I, I feel confident that it's, it's not fraudulent and that the value is there even if they've got to restate uh, earnings by a little bit. So that's totally, ex you know, explained to me. The other thing that you'd have to get sh comfortable with is that revenues here have fallen dramatically in the last few years, and it's not apparent, you know, why that is in terms of any uh, divestiture, anything like that. But, um, you know, they've had a, a material uh, weakness here in their markets, and there's no discussion here of share loss, anything like that. But I suspect that when you get into a period of consumer spending like we've been in, um, you know, people just aren't buying the new version. You know, that's all. For example, the most recent version of... Uh, uh, Microsoft Office, you know, I didn't necessarily pull the trigger. So I can relate to people who might want to put off uh, an upgrade on their, you know, uh, their media composer product, and that's, um, uh, that's understandable to me. So I think you can, in some sense, if you have confidence that the underlying business is going to be okay, and I get my confidence from the fact that um, entertainment is tied into a wealth and um, I have confidence that wealth over time is going to continue to grow and that um, this particular tool will get its full share of value of the growth in those um, video markets. Um, one of the things that you know must concern investors looking at Value Line is that they didn't earn any money the last couple of years. In fact, Value Line just puts NMF. They don't even calculate a PE or you know, uh, their whole 2009 is NMF in it, for for that matter. So I think that, um, again, I don't usually do this, but I went to uh, Edgar, um, and I use Edgar Pro, which costs $100 a year. I can recommend it. And you get, you know, granular uh, information out of the 10 Qs and 10 Ks. Um, and so what I found in there was that, yeah, they lost money, uh, the last uh, 12 months or so. But you got to think about a couple things. One, they have some depreciation. So, you know, that's a non-cash expense 
I'm going to add that back in, you know. Um, and then the other thing that is a real expense in terms of cash, but I often add back in a situation like this, is R&D. And they spent, in the last 12 months, um, I took a note here, which, again, I don't usually do, um, somewhere around $120 million in R&D. And while that was real money, is that an expense for the current period, or is that really work that relates to future periods that might have a positive present value? And yet I'm deducting it. So, you know, to me it's not like uh, using up uh, electricity and it's gone. R&D is going to lead to something in the future. So I understand the accountants want me to subtract it because they don't know what's going to come from it. At the same time, my suspicion is is that that whole R&D budget is a net present value positive event, and so maybe I shouldn't be so quick to deduct it in terms of, you know, some kind of uh, a pro forma uh, operating income. And when I do that, when I add back depreciation and amortization and I add back R&D, uh, the company was, you know, reasonably profitable the last couple years and, um, you know, not great, but they certainly didn't lose money. And I think I didn't write it down, but they made have made uh, 50 cents or 75 cents or something like that in terms of cash flow. And the stock's at 13. So in a terrible year, um, you know, they're trading at something, you know, on the order of 20, 25 times trough cash flow, which is still positive. The other thing I like is they have no debt, so they can outlast the storm, and they've got a little bit of cash. So uh, this is one I, you know, drilled into a little bit and, and got pretty excited about it. Avid Technologies, ticker AVID, and with that, and I see I've created a very long show tonight, so I apologize. I'm a little sleepy. Um, and I just started going on. I don't know why. Um, but in any case, I'll, uh, I'll have to pick a favorite here. Um, now that Philip has uh, got that in my head, um, I'm remembering it. And I think this week I'm going to go with, um, you know, it's really kind of a toss-up for me this week, but I'm going to go with Avid because I think the upside is so much greater than it is at Sara Lee or Philip Morris. So Avid, ticker AVID, page 2010. And with that, I want to thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week, everybody. Bye-bye.